Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which apparently some malicious god decided wasn't quite white enough before this week and hastily corrected the situation with like six feet of snow. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio. WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. You can also listen to Public Reality Radio on our website at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. And joining us once again, our friend, Teen Pop Sensation, Justin Schieber. Oh, hey, kids. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to have you back, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, on today's show, we're talking politics, porn, props, polyatheism, psychology, that starts with a P, and apologetics, comma, counter. I like alliteration. Shut up. Polyamory. What else can you throw in there? <laughs> well, didn't think of that. Let's start off here um, because we are actually recording today's show on one of the most significant religious holidays of the year, Porn Sunday. Yeah, happy National Porn uh, and Sunday. And also Super yeah. Bowl Guys. Sunday because it's the same thing. Yeah, whatever. It's religious. I don't care about baseball. It, it seems like it comes earlier every year. Oh, <laughs> oh Justin fitting right oh, in. I, wow. Reach for the low-hanging fruit. That's, that's good. Usually that's Luke because he's short. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's Porn Sunday today, and this is actually – this is an event sponsored by folks that we've talked about before on the show, the people of the Triple X Church. Dot com, yeah. Dot com, yeah. Yeah, the mo most confused Christian website <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> by the way, there is – I think I was looking for Vin Diesel, and I ended up there. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but there's a really good documentary about the Triple X Church and yeah, how called, they came to be. Called Missionary Positions. Missionary Positions. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's worth checking out. But, but today they are advocating – Porn Sunday, when it, were churches all across North America and the world, perhaps? I don't know. Are supposed to talk about the problem of porn. That's right. Triplexchurch.com uh, is – we talked about them on the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll yes, episode. They were the guys with the Wally the Wiener mascot, the 30-foot yeah. inflatable phallus. Yes. Complete <laughs> with scrotum and smile. But uh, no foreskin. But no foreskin. <laughs> And Wally the Wiener really is a is a good way. <laughs> I get he's he's a fitting mascot for that group um, because they try to they try to market old style sexual repression, but kind of in a new trendy package. Right, right. Reverse uh, psychology, yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. So they're the type of people that will tell you know they'll tell teenagers, look, it's immoral to masturbate because it's. It requires lustful thoughts, but they'll do it with a cool little video about right. how 
every time you masturbate, God will kill kittens and rock yes. music. And or they'll have, have hipster like, irony and that sort of thing. Nubile young girls handing out pamphlets about the yeah. evils of porn outside oh, strip clubs. Yeah. Spring break, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's all coming back now. Yeah. They sell form-fitting uh, T-shirts for girls, very tight form-fitting T-shirts to girls that say Jesus loves porn stars. I mean, they're they're yeah. Yeah. incredibly, incredibly confusing. You really have to look at their suggestion box. It's a different idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, how do they like? You know, how do they sort through these different? Well, it's 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 an uphill battle making sex uncool. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Uh, so, Porn Sunday is uh, supposed to churches participate in Porn Sunday, where they're going to bring up this uncomfortable topic of pornography in the church. The fact that so many Christians, so many pastors. So many members of the church are actually viewing pornography. They, they did that on a recent episode of Family Guy. The guy who started this organization, uh, Craig Gross, says about Porn Sunday, uh, quote, Instead of the church boycotting or picketing or legislating against pornography, if the church would just stop consuming porn, we'd put a big dent in the porn industry. But actually, he's he's right. He's totally right. <laughs> because when you look at the statistics, a lot of the the major consumers of pornography are uh, conservative are from conservative Christian areas. Yeah, this was this was uh, from a study by Benjamin Edelman. It was published in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. This got a lot of press actually when it came out in 2009 because a lot of it was counterintuitive. Oh, you know, to many people it was counterintuitive, mm-hmm. but to other people like such as me. Makes sense, but that he uh, what he did is he had the he got the the subscription rates for consumption of pornography where you give credit cards information and to sign up for Who pornography. Pays yeah, for pornography only on the internet. Pay for porn. They obviously don't honest, know what they're doing. Honest people. Wow. That, that could be a confound in the study actually that the people who are you know paying for it are the honest Christians and can, no, maybe, no, no, maybe no, no. I have to pay. <laughs> the, uh, but what he found was uh, that uh, the conservative uh, states, areas with the conservative populations, are the ones with the highest subscriptions. So, for example, the oh. state with the highest. Uh, pornography s- subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Anyone want to take a guess? Per capita, uh, here? it has to be yes. New York, right? No, California, California. where all the heathens Californication? live. Californication? No. Uh, oh, uh, Utah. Oh, whoa! <laughs> Mormon capital of the world. Utah, right? And oh. well, one thing you mentioned is that there wasn't a lot of difference. First of all, these differences are not big between the states. So right, it's not as if right. one area is Sodom and Gomorrah, the other is the shining city on a hill. Right, but. Uh, when the the other thing was that the the states with a conservative population, and so he determined this by a bunch of measures. Those states who had, for example, like anti-homosexual laws on the books, anti-gay mm-hmm. marriage, uh, you know, the states that had uh, people uh, voting for a lot of family values issues were the ones that had highest pornography subscriptions. Yeah, yeah, and controlling 11, for a bunch of other factors too. Eleven percent, uh, they said. Any any state that had a defensive marriage amendment was 11% more like a uh, higher subscription rate. Oh, wow. Now, yeah. there, there's clearly some confounds here because, for example, the average age of a state is a factor because young people yeah. tend to be more right, likely. To, and so one thing that you know probably Utah has working either for or against it, depending on where you stand, is lots of young people. Well, all those prolific Mormons, they, right? Yes, yeah. they have large families, so lots of young people. And then things like, you know, income or urban versus rural status. Right. But even controlling for all those factors, it still came out that the conservative states had those, and those that and, have higher and, r- religious attendance. Yeah, yeah, well, that's mm-hmm. what I was going to say. There's some very interesting quirks in the data that really can only be explained by the fact that a lot of these people are religious, such as... Porn consumption rates on certain days of the week. Yep. So, 
given the fact there wasn't a lot of differences between these things and that there's uh, that uh, when you look at he could determine it by what day the person subscribes, there was a dip on Sundays. But the rate was yeah, overall was the same, which means, ergo, the people were making up for the viewing on days <laughs> yes. other than Sundays. They were jacking up their usage. <laughs> oh. I'm not going to watch that. I have to go to church. You know, Monday oh. comes around. Well, I'll wow. make up for it here. I'm feeling all wound up. <laughs> so uh, you yeah. can't make up data. Like well, you got to see so what you missed on Sunday and. Yeah, get up to date. This this sort of thing actually, like I said, it doesn't surprise people like me because we see all this all a lot of these effects of like a rubber band type of thing where if you or suppress a, if you no not like oh. that if you pull something back and suppress it it's going to rebound in of course area. yeah so, absolutely uh, people clearly want some sort of gratification uh, with pornography but when you have you know uh, areas where people or or you know, like with church attendance that momentarily suppresses that sort of urge or behavior. It, uh, it just comes back in a different form later on. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One interesting thing that came out of this study that was that um, subscriptions are more prevalent in areas where uh, – in areas, they say, with higher social capital as defined by areas where people donate more blood, engage in mm. more volunteer activities – and uh, and prepare and participate in community projects. So wait, you're saying people who also do good in their community in their community subscribe to porn? That's right. Where uh, do they have I, time? Up <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> they work hard and they play hard. A lot of time on their hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> these oh, people. It is a productivity killer, but uh-huh. uh, you like to see their Thompson planner. Nine to ten, give blood. Ten to eleven, save orphans. 11 to 12 is my time. <laughs> Don't come in. Daddy's – no. I think you're thinking of it the wrong way is that once you get that load off, you have all that much more freedom to go do good in your community. I, I see. Once you, you've committed genocide <laughs> oh, on your seed. If every sperm yeah, is sacred. Every sperm sure. is sacred. Interesting. Inter- I, I, I'm waiting for the, the data on what kind of porn sites have the highest oh, subscription yes. in these gold areas. Mine. A gold mine. Can that you just, be... I mean, the, you know, the, the gay porn and the various kinks. I'm, uh, the, the breakdown of that in Utah alone, yeah. I think, would be. Uh, the, the Mormons and their magic underpants. <laughs> well, they, you know, I listened to the story on NPR that covered this, this thing, and they interviewed some people and, you know, like people with porn addiction in the Christian community. Mm-hmm. And the way they talk was, you know, I was just thinking in my mind when you have a bunch of people that keep a lid on so tight and mm. they have, you know, these sexually repressed relationships. And, of course, these guys have it all available. And right. the dude they were talking to in the radio, and the interview was like, you know, uh, within five minutes, I, I can't help. I go to these sites with a couple clicks away. There was available women. And it's like, you know, if they would just allow a little bit of latitude in their right. normal lives for normal, cel- healthy sexual functioning, it wouldn't be such a driven compulsion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, let's move on, shall we? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the big story of the week, um, and that is, of course, what's been going on in Egypt. And um, those of you, uh, our listeners who are news hounds uh, like myself, I've been listening to Egypt coverage every day. And still, I don't know everything that's going on. And anything we say today will be different by the time yeah. anyone hears yeah. this episode. We do have a listener, a fan of the show and personal friend of uh, of mine, Scott Shupak, uh, was in Egypt 
Really? Yeah, in Cairo. Wow. Because this whole his thing Facebook was breaking postings out. were like, I'm in Cairo, having a great yeah. time. And then it got a little scary, oh, like, <laughs> well, yeah, we're geez. going out sometimes and looking at things. And then they just stopped. And now, yeah, yeah, then they stopped. And then the next one was, well, I was mugged and detained in a police uh, yeah. <laughs> detention yep. center. Yeah. For... He's safe in Jordan now. So yes. Oh, good. good. now in Jordan. And, and, but and then okay. he added, unless they have a revolution here, too. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. the crowds have been on the streets of Amman. And, yeah. So to Scott Wendy and any other Reasonable Doubts listeners in that area, you know, we, we are hoping the best for you. Not praying, because it would be a waste of time. Of course. What if you hear a headline, like, American student uh, elected leader of pro-democracy movement and <laughs> <laughs> given semi, semi-divine status in Egypt? And, yeah. <laughs> I rule my country. Um, I, I have to say, first off, um, to get the politics out of the way, um, I, I don't understand, especially people on the right who are throwing up their arms and saying, we need to stop these protesters. They want democracy. And I'm thinking, really? We finally have a, a, a majority Muslim country that wants a legitimate democracy? No, no. True, true democracy is imposed on the outside by exactly. military superpower. Exactly. Except sometimes not. Well, I disagree with violence on either side. The violence didn't start until the pro-Mubarak mm-hmm. forces came in and started throwing Molotov cocktails and everything else. And then the protesters, they shouldn't have, but they did. Um, they attacked in kind. I think it's understandable that they retaliated. After days and days yeah. of being yeah. beaten up. And, and uh, you know, to get beyond what's happening now, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Now, if you're a fan of Glenn Beck, and frankly, if you're a fan of Glenn Beck and listening to this show... That's some amazing cognitive dissonance. (laughs) But Glenn Beck, I I, I was watching clips of Glenn Beck talking about the caliphate that's going to be the result of this uprising in Egypt. And and throughout, we're seeing, by the way, the uprising in Egypt is not happening in a vacuum. It's um, the result of political unrest elsewhere in um, Africa and the Middle East. Quite frankly, Tunisian was the the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other ones popping up all over the place, Egypt, of course, being the biggie. So Glenn Beck is sowing seeds of paranoia, surprise, surprise, that if these protesters win and unseat Mubarak, who is, of course, a good friend of the United States because we put him in office 30 years ago, where he has illegitimately kept his office through false elections, that if he gets out, then the Muslim Brotherhood is going to take over and we're going to end up with Africa and parts of Europe and all of the Middle East controlled by Islam. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not com- it's not a completely made up threat. And that's and that's the interesting thing is there's you know, we've, we've some s- truth to we've seen this, seen this happen in yes. uh, in revolutions before in the Middle East where mm-hmm. the state uh, the state no longer under some autocrat sympathetic to the West. Right. Uh, Suddenly degrades into an Islamic state. Well, even during um, Bush, when they promoted elections in the in Gaza Strip, mm-hmm. then Hamas came to power, and so exactly. it puts them in this position where they're like, you know, we support democracy. Period. Freedoms on the march. Oh, it's people we don't like that got elected. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, then we're not going to support them. And that's the thing. I actually democracy. do support democracy. If they want an Islamic nation, if they vote for that, and it kind of looks like that may not happen, it might. I'm not going on record as saying they're not going to end up with some kind of Sharia law, um, but it looks like with 
and we talked about this last week with the way Christians and Muslims have been standing together in Egypt. Uh, Muslims protecting Christians, Coptic Christians. Um, we talked about that two weeks ago before all of this started. Yeah. And it's happening again in Tahrir Square. Um, or when we're recording this, it's happening. It's already happened when you're listening to this. The, the Christians are holding a uh, prayer service uh, in the square. The headline today was that some of the Muslim groups formed a cordon around them to protect them and yes. allowed them to have their service. So this this is perhaps a sign of hope of mm-hmm. some kind of secular or if not secular, at least fairly open government coming up. And that's mm-hmm. and that's the point. Part of this fear about the Muslim Brotherhood taking over and everything else is is intentionally engineered by Mubarak. Of course. Uh, he's allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to be one of the few resistance groups in that country. Mm-hmm. To because have it a makes foothold him look better. Because exactly, as, as a deterrence to anybody – to Western powers yes. and other things, anybody trying to unseat him. Hey, if I'm the, gone, yeah. these radical Muslims will take right. over. So they make the, the Muslim Brotherhood illegal. There was a great interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Uh, she interviewed Thanasis Kambanis uh, from Columbia University. And he was pointing this out, that the Muslim Brotherhood is illegal, but they're tolerated in Egypt. Right. In fact, they've held several seats they serve as independents. Uh, they, yeah, they they hold seats in yeah. their government. They serve as independents, but their offices are the uh, Muslim Brotherhood offices. Everybody knows who they're affiliating mm-hmm. with. Uh, whenever they become a little out of hand, uh, every once in a while, uh, Mubarak purges and, them yeah. and takes care of it. But they're actually allowed to be this resistance group right. for this very reason. Uh, so it will be a deterrent from uh, from kicking. Mubarak out. And he also uses that to, for the government to for our fear of al-Qaeda because uh, Osama bin Laden's number two, Zawahiri, was a Muslim right. Brotherhood guy. You can actually see the footage of him in, put in prison. He's, he's Egyptian, not Saudi Arabia. Right, right. He was put in prison by uh, Mubarak's regime. He was a medical doctor, and you can actually see the footage of him like you know reading things from the jail cell. That's, that's, yeah. So he can, Mubarak can say, look, I imprisoned the Al Qaeda people, yeah. and this is where this is the well, and, and that that also speaks to another important factor, at least in the U.S. reaction, is Egypt is on friendly terms with the U.S. in large part because they are one of the only pro-Israel countries in the region, and of course we're all pro-Israel in the United States, blindly pro-Israel, less pro-Israel and more not. Anti-Israel. Well, they were the first yeah. ones. To, they were the first ones to sign the peace treaty. That's what got Saddam yeah. killed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so there is. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And and really, the the reason that we're having concern about the Muslim Brotherhood or any other radical group coming to power is that this protest is completely decentralized. There is no central movement to it. It's literally just the people taking to the streets. It's a it's a grassroots movement. This yeah. is this is actually just people who are fed up. They saw what happened in Tunisia and they said, hey, maybe we can do something about this. And that's what this uh, Cambanis from Columbia University was saying too, uh, was that one of the neat things and reasons for optimism about this situation Mm -hmm. is that for such a long time, people have thought in these Middle Eastern countries, you're either going to have the Western autocrat, Western supported autocrat, or you're going to have the radical Islamists. But we're seeing here a popular secular movement. Yes. It's not just Muslims it's radicals who are protesting. Own, right. 
and uh, and this might this might be a new alternative. And further, even even from more the the conservative religious parties, even like the Muslim mm-hmm. Brotherhood, there's still a little bit of reason to hope there too. In that there are more moderate wings yes. of that movement. So, for example. One of the big rifts that's formed in the Muslim Brotherhood is over what the ideal constitution of Egypt should be mm-hmm. with a, a younger faction of the Muslim Brotherhood feeling it should uh, – you know, women and uh, non-Muslims should be allowed wow. to run for public office and hold it. You know, so there Which are, is pretty radical thinking within the Muslim with, Brotherhood. <laughs> for a radical Muslim. Right, group. right. Yeah. They can uh, change the name to Brotherhood and Sistahood. So. <laughs> So that doesn't seem likely. But okay. yeah. So there is reason to be afraid and there is reason to hope in this situation. And it's just going to be interesting watching how this one pans out. Absolutely. Um, well, venturing not too far away from Egypt, uh, going back to a story we've been talking about for uh, quite a while, I think going back about a year now, we've, we've touched on this, uh, unfortunately, uh, over in Uganda. We talked before about um, the American evangelists who were making waves in Uganda, um, sowing seeds of gay hate. Well, not sowing. Frankly, the seeds were already there in Uganda. But they, Fertilizing they're them. Fertilizing them. Watering them. With their yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Nurturing them. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and... Pruning them into great hateful shrubs. <laughs> Most recently, a Ugandan newspaper... Which is oddly named Rolling Stone. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. noticed that. I, I Many people that. careful to point out not the same as the Rolling Stone. Yes. Yeah. It's more like no. Hurled Stone, I not think. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Stoning. Um, but uh, they published 100 pictures, I believe it was 100, right? Yep. Of um, people that they identified as homosexuals living in Uganda uh, under the headline that said, Hang Them. Of course, in Uganda, there are, are people who are trying to outlaw homosexuality and impose death penalty for it. We've talked about this before. I'd like to be at the pitch meeting in the editorial room for that one. Uh, what do we <laughs> put down there? Hang, hang them. Go with that. I like it. Are put they Indian the in Uganda? <laughs> That's my standard accent. <laughs> Luke just has the one accent. I have one accent. Um, back off. But as a result of this, um, uh, one man, uh, Mr. Cato, David Cato, I believe is his name was uh, brutally murdered, beaten to death with a hammer. And his picture uh, was one of the ones featured in this article. He's also been a outspoken gay rights advocate in Uganda. So it really is just like a it's a treasure map for the anti-gay movement to just hunt him down one by one. Right. I while mean, they have their picture in hand. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. literally saying, look, these are the people, these are the gays, go out and get them. Yep. You know, even if the government won't execute them, because we've talked about before on the show too, that no one has actually been executed under this law yet, but it's, it's used as a witch hunt. Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing we saw with a lot of these blasphemy laws in Pakistan, for exactly. example. Just because the government doesn't always enforce these rules that say death to those who insult Muhammad doesn't mean doesn't that mean the lynch mobs yeah. don't. Exactly. And and so, yeah. And, and I, I hope Mr. Cato is the only person who will fall victim to this. But I would be surprised. Well, it, what we can do here in the United States, though, is still hold the family's feet to the fire. That is the Christian right. group who, who goes over there and uses Uganda as their own little sandbox of, yes. let's make him into a... a yeah, we're losing the war at home, so let's go find yeah. a... And, and they, of course, always say, oh, we, we don't advocate the murder of homosexuals. And, and I, I believe that they probably don't. 
out. But they're also not doing anything using this influence they have in Uganda to curb this mm. sorts of this sort of rhetoric. And a lot of them have been shamefully late to denounce it. Absolutely. Uh, or not at all. Ha- haven't denounced Rick it Warren. at all. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, preaching things like, um, you know, pray the gay away and, and that sort of thing. So leaving the Ugandan people with this idea that these people are choosing to be gay. Therefore, they're choosing to sin. Therefore, they're evil. Right. They're playing this. a role yeah. in this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Example of how political rhetoric and uh, the media can certainly contribute to real-world violence, too. Interesting that you should mention that, Jeremy, because uh, I believe we talked about that some on last week's episode. Yeah, just for a couple seconds. Just for – literally. But people, people took note of it. it uh, big time. I actually wanted to start by talking about this by reading some of the um, blog posts that we got on our website, doubtcast.org, on this episode. Yes, the issue was centering around, I think, two comments you made, Dave. Yep. Very well, short comments. A couple of comments I made, and then we throughout the episode we made a couple of jokes about Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin oh, okay, possibly yeah. being uh, anti-Semite because of her blood libel comments. Um, you can go back to the episode and listen. It literally it was one of the things we spent the least time on in the episode. Every time I see a comment of people, I always go back in my own memory and say, "Did I say that?" Or just yeah, <laughs> yeah. they say, "Oh." No, Dave. Oh, it was Dave. Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank goodness. Oh. I don't have to take this one up. First, there's uh, this this delightful reaction from a devoted listener. He said, you guys have always struck me as being reasonable and not knee-jerk. Oh, thank you. Until now. Oh. Although I think Sarah Palin is a buffoon, your characterization of her as a white supremacist and anti-Semite was vile, unsupported by the facts, and unfortunately typical of exactly the type of rhetoric which you are falsely claiming only comes from the right. Uh, we never said she was a white supremacist. We said she was an idiot. We said she was an idiot. Yeah. Um, the point I made is that her blood libel <laughs> statement was either an act of uh, anti-Semitism. That's not even the term I used. Um, a racist. A very racially insensitive yes. comment. Or just completely out of ignorance. Or complete ignorance. And I think we all agree. We all agree that that was, that that was the, the more likely one. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I firmly believe that. But I also said that being that stupid to use a term carrying that much weight is just as much a condemnation as intentionally using um, yes. the term. Uh, Jeremy, before you started, we, we you used the example of um, a politician using the term final solution. Well, yeah, people yeah. say final solution, but that doesn't really make it right. okay. It doesn't excuse the ignorance. This – uh, listener has decided to unsubscribe and delink us from his blog and Facebook and no longer recommend us to questioning believers. And to th- which I say, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no tears shed over it's, that. It's no question that the doubtcasters, speaking of us in the third person collectively, yes, yes. <laughs> that, we, that we all have liberal leanings. Yes. I, I don't think yes. I don't think and unapologetically. Call, I don't think calling Sarah Palin a moron 
is a political statement at all. No, no. I think that's more of a perception well, of th- even reality. this guy agreed with us that Sarah <laughs> and Palin's there, an yeah, idiot. Yeah, but... and numerous, numerous conservatives who listen to this show would thoroughly agree yes. that she's an embarrassment right. uh, to to that political party. So, I, yeah. yeah. Uh, another comment. Um, this uh, gentleman, I believe gentleman, it's anonymous, so we don't know, is a sociolinguist, and he says that... Uh, Claims to be a sociolinguist. Claims to be a sociolinguist and says that, you know, we're giving Sarah Palin, uh, not just us, but everyone is giving Sarah Palin too much crap about using blood libel because pundits from both parties use it when referring to unfair accusations involved in violence. I, I see his point in that we should be attacking anyone who uses it, but the fact that it she used it, a high-profile pseudo-politician used this in reference to a very recent bloody event involving a Jewish congressperson is a little bit more worthy of note, I think. Well, and and again, uh, saying when she said blood libel, it really didn't offend me all that much. (laughs) You know, I'm not Jewish, but I didn't find it all that offensive. It, It was it was more worth a two-second comment about what a moron she is. Yes. That's which is what that's we That's really the amount of attention that that was worth. It was just it is it's amazing though to see um, the the people who it, instead of just saying yeah she's made a bonehead comment yeah people freaking out about it <laughs> right right uh, about you know and suddenly defending this as if this is. It's this okay. Just it's okay norm. to say that. No, it's she's stupid. And, and the claim, the claim, really, the only claim I thought was really that people were bringing up against us that was worth challenging was the claim that you, you liberals, are just as bad about this at inciting hatred, right, and hysterical rhetoric, that sort of thing. Which actually, I think that is a, a misperception. Well, I think yeah, that's a false equivalent. We had we had one um, commenter on the blog who actually gave us a link um, citing evidence that the left is just as guilty as the right, and you know, actual verifiable quotes of of lefties, liberals, who also said stupid things, used violent rhetoric, that sort of thing. So the the tendency in the media and, oh, John Stewart is is more to blame for this than anyone, I think, is drawing this false equivalency of there's crazy people on the right, there's crazy people on the left, can't we just be less crazy? Yeah, and is- he had his whole <laughs> rally to restore sanity based on that idea. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's not true. When it's, I read that not, comment, I, I went back and started to think because that did sound like something I'd said that that there is that you know there's not a equivalence between the right and the left, and so I did a lot of poking around on that, and I actually wished I would have said that there isn't because there isn't. Right. That is, I'm willing to take I, this might bother some of our conservative listeners, but I think I'm fairly willing to now go out on an empirical limb and say. There isn't. Now, if the person was just referring to comments on blogs, okay, there are crazy liberal comments. Sure, and crazy absolutely. And ignorance and whatever, stupidity, just as much as on the right. But this, the, when you look at the social science literature that mm. measures people's, you know, ranging from liberal to conservative and looks at things like tendency to use violent rhetoric or tendency to actually endorse violence, 
there isn't an equivalence, right? The right-wing people are, in fact, more accepting of violence than left-wing people. Do we have data on this is what I'm wondering. Well, yeah. What I was more interested in rather than talking about Palin's specific thing uh, about what, who does what was uh, in general, not just the media figures, but the actual people themselves, that right. is the question of to the extent that somebody endorses right ideology versus left ideology, does that relate in any way to their level of things like uh, support for violence, anti-Semitism, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this question actually has been asked in the, in social science literature. There, there was so much done research-wise after World War II with right-wing authoritarianism right. because of the obvious Nazi and fascist thing. How mm-hmm. could they do that? So a lot of the psychologists were interest, specifically labeled in things like tendency towards fascism. There was a backlash actually by some researchers like, hey, wait, what about commies and uh, left-wing, like in the 60s, left-wing radicals who bomb napalm factories. Right, of course. They're just as violent as the John Birch Society people like that. Mm-hmm. So research has actually been done on this, looking at whether it's in fact like a circle spectrum where radicalism, both on the right and the left, fold back it's in violent themselves. Regardless. And then the yeah. people, the moderates, are the least violent. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pan out. It's, if anything, it's more like a fish hook, where yes, moderates are sort of the least violent. Of course. And then conservatives are way violent. And then as you get to the liberal side, it might bend downwards towards intolerance more, but not mm-hmm. as much on the right side. So there's very um, liberal side. The extreme liberal side has an increased level of violence compared to moderate. Well, support. I yes. would say violence. I would say like support, or violent intolerance, or support or, okay. for that. So let me actually just mention one. But the slope uh, is not as steep. Right. Yeah. This, yeah. So if you look at like. I've talked on the show before about authoritarianism and the work of uh, Robert Altermeyer, who's also right, studied right. like atheists. And he has, he has a whole extended study of people who are right-wing authoritarians. But he tried to address the, crit- the criticism that, hey, there are left-wing ator- authoritarians by doing basically a balanced design where he gave the, his authoritarian measure and then looked at the targets of who's doing something to see if they would be judged harshly. So like for a mm-hmm. right-wing authoritarian – people that they would hate most would be like pro-gay, liberal, commies, hippies, and that kind of right, thing. Right, right. But for a left-wing authoritarian, somebody who's a socialist, communist type person, their, their uh, you know, stereotype of the worst person would be a fascist right-wing politician. Mm. But when you give balanced things like that, where you give each group a chance to do, like, say, for example, a mock trial of somebody who incites violence, should this person get a harsh sentence versus lenient sentence, it's the right-wing authoritarians that are more extreme. They, they go easy on their guy. They go harsh on the opposite guy. But if you look at left-wing people, it's much more narrow. They, that is, right. they, don't, they don't discriminate as much by saying, well, I agree with this person, so let's go easy on them. Yes. They say this is wrong. It's wrong no matter right. who did it. And so in the whole series of things where he actually gave them a chance to you know, do things like mock trials or form a posse to round up deviants, deviants opposed to whatever my view is, consistently left-wing people – were more balanced. That the, the, as they said, there were some minor differences between favoring their person and, and condemning oh, sure, the other person, course. but not nearly as much as on the right. right. And that's something that's been found in other studies too. That you just don't find left-wing authoritarians that are as uh, supportive of things like violence and intolerance mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. people that they don't like. Right. It's much, so I guess empirically, I stand by whatever statement, whether it was me or you made the other day where we're like right wing people are worse. I think I can fairly well back that up, that there's something about being on the right wing in the spectrum. And this correlates very highly with things like Christian fundamentalism, 
you know, sort of Tea Partyism. Uh, uh, you know that that if you do things like if you don't support civil liberties, if you are more like gun crazy and, and proactive about rounding up deviants, there's something about that that makes th- those type of people much less tolerant of their opponents than mm-hmm. the hippie people, even if they're like earth first type out there, the most they, those people would do would be ranting right. and raving and throw some things through a Starbucks, but they're not likely to round up, you know, those aren't the people in trucks that pick up conservatives and take them to camps. Yeah. In, yeah. in our, there's further discussion of this in our episode, Don't Fear the Reaper. Mm-hmm. I think it was episode 51, um, where... That one that needs more cowbell? <laughs> yes. The one that needs more cowbell. <laughs> Well, I think part of it, we make the case there, but I think part of it might even come down to physiological differences. Yeah, there's something about, um, yeah, we mentioned like research that's something about conservatism that like, makes them more hardwired to be afraid of things. It, that, it's the stick up their ass, right? <laughs> what it's it is? pushing on the center that's of their That's more brain. of an environmental condition. Oh, okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. No, you know, people are looking at because a lot of these things, when you do look at social science studies, there's religion and politics and opinions about things, but there does seem to be some sort of underlying dimension of of liberalism, conservatism that's almost like a personality trait right. that makes that that does deal with things like open mindedness versus traditionalism, you know, willingness to change versus uh, um, you know openness to new ideas versus closeness to ideas, tolerance for ambiguity and uh, right, and right. needing something clear and stable. And, and as far as our uh, just to add, as far as our statement about anti-Semitism, I again don't think personally that that, that Christians walk around more so with ideas of you know kill the Jews, but right. there are. There's also some other evidence that, um, again, it's not just any Christian, but the more conservative and right-wing you get on that level, that they are, on some levels, more anti-Semitic. So yeah, they've done studies, yeah, like with other, we talked before about like prejudice often being unconscious or mm-hmm. when we do racial issues, that there are measures also of unconscious anti-Semitism that, um, and a lot of people have pointed out even this thing of like, we support Israel and we want to, you know, because the Jews are the chosen people, there's even a benign sort of anti-Semitism there of paternalism. Like, right. oh, oh sure. there are less developed little brothers yeah. and, you know. Right. Well, that view that, that they're really just Christians who haven't found the right Christ exactly. yet. They're you one know? savior away from perfection. It, that's right. Uh, that's, no, it was uh, Ann Coulter who said that first, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. But you see this, like we've talked before in the show about like John Hagee and some of these people who offer t- uh, support for Israel that's unconditional on tours of the right, Holy Land. Right. A lot of that stuff is predicated, though, on rapture-type Armageddon exactly. stuff where we want to convert the Jews. We hope they convert. And, uh, you know, and they, they make sure to, to couch everything. And it's a Judeo-Christian nation. But even historically, you know, if you go back in, the, in, in history in the country, the Judeo part was... You know, it's, how would you like secondary. to have been a Jew like more than 50 years ago? It was like right. they don't. There's a thin veneer of we support Jews in Israel and and uh, and, and underneath that there's a whole sea of so Jesus can come back. Yeah, so right. Jesus can come back. Be, and so again, they can somebody's convert. somebody's going to misunderstand us. We're not saying to be conservative equals to be anti-Semitic. No, exactly. But we are saying that the proportion of anti-Semites. Are is conservative to the right. Towards, yes. yes, yes, yes. Speaking of remarkable use of rhetoric, um, on, on last week's episode, we made a reference to Bill O'Reilly's "Tide goes in, tide goes out" mm. comment. Which, if you didn't pick up on what that meant, because we didn't yeah. really explain it, Bill Bill O'Reilly was interviewing the new president of American Atheists, Silverman. Yeah, and uh, and. Used his Who's master argument to prove seconds. theism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his master argument for proving theism, um, which Stephen Colbert elegantly demonstrated, has been a line he's memorized and used for years and years and years. His argument was, 
tide goes in, tide goes out, never a miscommunication. <laughs> Was Bill O'Reilly's? Uh, so clearly, God argument. is at work. Beautiful. Yes, and what was Silverman? Yeah, is that he, his name? you could yeah. see him blink. Yeah, sort of a couple of seconds to make sure he wrapped his head around that. He he had the same reaction that terrifies me. Why I would never try to be a media spokesman right. for atheism, you know, and go on these interview shows, is because I'm terrified of getting in that situation where the argument is just so dumb. Right. <laughs> oh, right. You're you're actually stunned and breathless uh, as to how to answer. Well, if I had to explain why the tides are caused by the moon. Well, and then you Bill O'Reilly finished the argument by saying, that, I'm not a rational person. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, another reference Call to last week. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I wonder what I would do. Well, anyways, many people did point out to Bill O'Reilly that we can explain the tides and it's explained by the moon. Yes, the gravitational yeah, yeah, pull yeah. of the moon. And he responded on his blog, okay, pinheads. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you you should watch this video if you get it's a great. chance. We'll try to link to it uh, because he has such a smug attitude while he's delivering this. But he, he's like, uh, okay, pinheads, who created the moon? Oh, or, or, he's got yeah, us. You know, where uh, did the moon a come collision from? collision with, with a proto-Earth and yeah. another body? Yeah, yeah. How do you explain that? Well, and then when why doesn't explain that Mars, to him. <laughs> why doesn't Mars have a moon? Yeah. It is does. what he says. Well, Which it does. Both. It has two. <laughs> And he keeps on going on like that, and it, it's just—it's even more embarrassing than his initial. Often, no, but that's claim. actually the most free. If I had to rank the most frequent things, you hear the anthropic type arguments of, of perfection, yep. and actually, I use Mars as an example. You know, of, we're not there are no people on Mars wondering how perfect things are for life. Because exactly. that's a rocky, barren planet, exactly. and every other there are no people on the moon wondering how perfect things are for life. The only reason we're here is because we happen to be the ones survived to ask the question. Yes. It's the anthropic principle. But you could keep on, you know, you could keep on doing this and, you know, regress back prior and prior and prior if you had enough knowledge of cosmology and and uh, which Bill O'Reilly clearly does not. Yes, and uh, you know the evolution of solar systems and right. galaxies and that sort of thing. You could give him an explanation empirically based as to how these things develop, but he would just keep pushing you back and back. Until we got to that question, well, why existence? Why is there something instead of nothing? And uh, that's going to be the topic for today's counter-apologetics segment. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. The theists will often ask that, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? And and I think my initial response is, well, why not? Uh, there seems to be no reason why we should expect nothing as the default and something as a novel idea right. that needs some kind of explanation and, and should be unexpected. I always think of uh, this in terms of like Newton. We, we, used to, we used to just assume that an object should be at rest and if you move right. it, it'll, it'll move but it'll slow down. You know, eventually, we just assumed that you needed to add constant force to something to keep it moving. And Newton showed, no, it's it's not natural for an object to be at rest. Once it is, you know, once it has momentum, it's not going to slow down. That was a, a major shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do the same thing with existence. Why should right. we assume that nothing is the default situation? But anyways. Exactly. Uh, I think a more interesting uh, response to this kind of, of question is is realizing that 
Personally, I am unable to see how this, when turned back at them, doesn't actually make their God concept completely unintelligible at best. You know, we're told that the Christian God, you know, the God of classical theism is a perfect God. And the word perfect is not just a description of how, of how well God performs in the moral department, but of the very ontology of God himself. So, you know, if we allow ourselves to imagine what the state of existence was like before any creation act, then we will be imagining a point in time where God would have been everything, and this everything was absolute perfection, uh, morally and ontologically. So at this time, there would have been no designating between existence and God. They mm -hmm. would have been the same exact thing. So if we understand perfection to be a state of completeness and flawlessness, then to imagine a hypothetical state of affairs even slightly better would be by definition impossible. But wait, we know that something has changed from this initial default state. It's not so, just that God exists anymore. Let, let me, so let me clarify what you're saying. You're, you're saying God before he existed, if God is perfect, before he created anything, that was perfect existence. Right. You there could, could be no better existence because by definition. Right. Um, so there's no better state of affairs than just God floating out there with nothing else going on. Exactly. Right? And so, you know, we know that the universe exists now. So, you know, the Christians want to attribute this to God's intentional action. So how can this actually be? If I drive to the store intentionally, there has to be a reason for me doing so. If somebody mm -hmm. were to ask me why I was driving to the store, I would likely give them a, a desire. Like, um, you know, I wanted to buy a new pair of shoes and a belief. Like, I believe that they sold shoes at the store. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. And, of course, not all actions require beliefs and desires. However, intentional actions very much do. Hmm. So my point here is that having, an in, having a desire entails a lack of perfection and implies at least a hypothetical better state. Of, a, a want for something else, right? right? Yeah. Of which to intentionally strive towards. Um, in other words, if God can even conceive of a better state than just himself existing then God is not perfect, even by his own standards. And we all know that Christians hold God's standards as the ultimate. Right. Um, yeah. So what possible motivation for intentional action could there be when the current state of affairs is already perfect? There's no possibility of even flirting with a hypothetical better here. It is ruled yeah. out categorically by the very definition of perfect. So if we are to apply both of these terms, perfect and intentional creator to the same thing, it becomes completely unintelligible. Yeah. I think this is the whole idea of ontological perfection of God, that his existence is perfect in some sort of way, is really one of the roots of a lot of the confusion that centers around, the, you know, the, the muddled concept of God. If you had a limited God, if that's what you proposed, a God who wasn't all-powerful, uh, a God who wasn't perfect in every respect. Right. Um, it's easier. You, it wouldn't lead. It wouldn't lead to all these contradictions. Exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, well, but it wouldn't be a God that you'd you'd get as excited about. Right. It'd be hard to. Many people actually start to concede that God isn't all good and all perfect. That, that many people actually concede that now. I'm hearing philosophical arguments that once in a while where people will just try to head off this these sorts of the moral and right. the ontological perfection arguments by conceding maybe God isn't all good or all powerful or all. 
Right. Perfect. Right. And it's it's a it's a smart move, I think, because right. then it makes it harder. Well, a much less desirable sense, god to worship. Right. In the sense, it's a smart rhetorical. Like Mr. Deity, then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all right. Hi, guys. And yeah. I mean, we, we value people when they they improve themselves, right? Right. Mm-hmm. If God can't improve himself, then there's no reason to, like, think that he's great in that sense, right? So we can't, like, be – we can't stand in awe of God if, if he's just necessarily that part, way. Yeah, part of the contradiction of God is that in order to be perfect, at least as humans, we recognize something about, you know, goodness is striving to be better. Right. So if – God, in order to be perfect, God has to be something that's striving to be better, and how can you be better than perfect? Right, right. right. Okay, so I uh, I tried my best to look up some objections or to anticipate possible objections uh, that theists you know, might forward in response to this argument. So if I've missed any, and I'm going to go through them, but if I've missed any that actually solve this issue, then I want to know, so please email the show. So the first one I found comes from everybody's favorite Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig of ReasonableFaith.org. Uh, yes. Yay, Craig. The bizarro world version of our That's podcast. Right. <laughs> so a while back, uh, William Lane Craig and Victor Stenger had a debate on the existence of the Christian God. And among a list of attributes that uh, Stenger held as contradictory, he pointed out this perfect creator problem. Well, here's here's a clip of the debate. Uh, this is William Lane Craig responding to uh, the argument. According to the Christian view of God, God created the universe for the benefit of the creature, not for his own benefit, not from any imperfection in himself, but rather it is a creation so that we might come to know God, the joy and blessedness of, of personal relationship with him. So that creation just like salvation, is totally by God's grace. It is an expression of his overflowing love. The knowledge of God is what we were made for as human beings, and we find our ultimate fulfillment in knowledge of him. In response to a similar question on reasonablefaith.org, Craig elaborates a bit further. Quote, God is a perfect being, complete in himself, with no need of anything. Creation cannot have been motivated by any need or deficit to himself, Creation then must be an act of grace, something done not for God's sake, but for the sake of those created. Quote. Okay, so uh, that's like me having a baby so that my baby can find out how awesome I am. <laughs> am, am, I, am I characterizing that, the argument that fairly is, accurately? That is, that is right. Yeah, how can they yeah. also he, he doesn't get – in other words, God gets nothing from right. having – I just want this baby people, to know right. how, how freaking awesome her father is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And how do yeah. they explain the the imperfections of the creation and how why it sucks so well, bad? Well, that's the other thing. Like, where's he going on with this grace stuff? The the Bible itself, the Gospels talk about it being a narrow path that many walk the path right. to destruction, but only a few, only yeah. a, a handful of elect are actually chosen. So, so God, how does uh, how does that how does that mean grace for their sake? You know, right. it's, it's for your sake that I created the vast majority, billions of human beings Who are going to, to hell. suffer for an eternity before he ever came along in the form. So, you, ever, you know, Hitchens old line where he's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years that homo sapiens existed, right. you know, pestilence, disease, life expectancy of 21. And God looks upon it <laughs> with folded arms. It was folded arms with total <laughs> indifference. Then... 4,000 years ago, you know, well, we can't have this anymore. <laughs> it's time to intervene. <laughs> yeah, so one of my 
main problems with with Craig's response to this argument is uh, is kind of um, well, let me put it this way. I can address the first by bringing by going back to my earlier illustration. This time, let's change it slightly. If I'm going to the store not because I desire shoes, but because I'm getting shoes for a friend, it is easy to see that what I want is for my friend to be wearing shoes. Uh, notice it is not something that I need. It is something that I want or desire. It's, it's mm. simply a, mm-hmm. a preference to me. Um, as in, I can imagine a better state of affairs, uh, one where my friend is wearing Nike pumps. Uh, <laughs> is that still a thing? <laughs> it still exists. Well, it is in this universe. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Crazy parallel universe. <laughs> so I, I would have had an attitude towards that proposition that, you know, my friend is wearing shoes. And, and it and I would want it to become true about the world. Um, it was not true when I began having that atti- attitude, thus giving me a reason for intentional action. Mm. Um, so if God, as William Lane Craig says, is not motivated by any need or deficit or want or desire in himself, then God's creation of the universe cannot be an intentional action. Uh, he cannot have it both ways. Uh, it is true yeah. that William Lane Craig's God may not need anything. That's that's entirely true. Um, but he must want something if we're going to call this action intentional. And a want implies, of course, the ability to conceive of a preferable state other than the current one. Yeah. So the problem still stands here. Yeah, the only way I could think of that you could counter that objection is to say, well, God simply did not view a universe with humans as better than one without. It's lateral movement. Yeah. Is, is, to, is to bite the bullet and just say, no, this world is not preferable in any sort of way. But then argument of evil stuff kicks right, in. Yeah, right. then, then you, then you because have... if there's no benefit to this universe, it's not better. Then the than... universe is completely void of purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. everyone is like an atheist now. <laughs> yeah, wow. I didn't even see the implications there. Yeah, this yeah. would be an argument against there being some sort of purpose or order. If God had no desire. It's, yeah. yeah, right. And right. and it is not a better state of affairs having this world exist than then not you're, having you're it. You're really just an, an, a knee jerk. There yeah. Totally. There's no wow. there is no purpose for I like existence at I like all. Jeez guys. <laughs> what, what a downer. God slipped my wrist today. And, and another problem. That... Don't worry. The good news is God doesn't exist. <laughs> and you can have a purpose for your life. Yay! It's whatever you choose. <laughs> And, and the other problem I saw with this, uh, which is barely worth bringing up, but, um, you know, it you guys kind of touched on it earlier where, uh, you know, how on earth does it make sense for a creator to create something for the benefit of that thing which does not exist Exist. yet. (laughs) So Craig's God created the universe for the benefit of humans, but humans, of course, would not exist until God created the universe for their own benefit. Why is God concerned that they be happy if he has no desire for them to exist? The Mm. response is slightly more unintelligible than the God that William Lane Craig actually (laughs) believes in. (laughs) Some other possible objections that I could maybe think would, would they would bring up is that, you know, well, this argument assumes a causal relationship between desires and actions in real time. But the Christian God transcends time. Mm. So, you know, he transcends our lowly conception of time. So the argument doesn't apply. Right. Uh, but this... In other words, the you can't fit my God inside of a box <laughs> objection. He's bigger than reason, right. which means he can do anything. <laughs> and, uh, Uh, This kind of deserves a fairly simple response. I mean, if God's actions are not influenced by prior desires and God cannot 
then God cannot be an intentional actor by any sense of the word. Whatever God's actions are falls outside the realm of understanding. So by going down this road, they forfeit the right to say that God is even capable of intentional action Hmm. at all. Why pray then? Yeah, exactly. Right. If God doesn't desire to fulfill such things. Absolutely. Yes. Then you'd be like the Flanders boys who says, thank God for sending Lisa to get rid of that moth you sent. Yeah. <laughs> I always like that. Just that you do. That's great. And, and like you said, uh, Jeremy, the only, the only one, other one I could think of is, is, you know, just saying that the universe was not an intentional act. But that, of course, you know. Or giving up perfection. Just say, look, okay, God's, God's not perfect. He's incomplete. Right. He needs us. For some reason, we complete you him. Complete we me. complete him. Abraham, yes, Lord, yeah. you complete me. But only a handful of us. He also needs tons of us to suffer, and exactly, and, uh, exactly. before he's going to yes. feel satisfied. Him too. Yeah. Well, interesting argument. Yes. Uh, more, more fun from William Lane Craig, as always. Um, Our offer still stands. If he wants to pop in, be on the show anytime. Anytime. That would be great. Now, of course, here on the show, uh, we don't just not believe in one god, though. Uh, no, no, there are far too many other gods worth not believing in. So, in that spirit, we venture now into the world of polyatheism. In this edition, we'll take a look at the Mesopotamian god, Enki. How do you spell that? I love Enki. Yeah, me too. Spell it. E-N-K-I. Although in cuneiform, it's wedge-shaped hole, wedge-shaped hole, wedge-shaped hole, wedge-shaped hole. (laughs) Is that that related to the Ankh, the A-N-K-H? That's kind of like a cross with a loop on the top? That's – yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's Egypt. So um, there's possible some cultural um, connections there. 4,000 – 5,000 years ago, we were chipping things in – Clay tablets with a stylus, and now you're doing it with your little Blackberry. Yeah, Pinky yeah, rocks because pick, of his Nam shubs. <laughs> He's uh, got sweet Nam shubs. Um, Enki, also known as E to the Akkadians, that's E A for those of you spelling along at home. A lot of the Mesopotamian gods have various names and stories because of the various cultures that came and went in ancient Mesopotamia. You see, different groups are constantly lured in by the rich natural resources. They overthrow the ruling power and impose their own culture on the conquered people. Thank goodness that's all over and done with. But rewriting all their myths and everything else yeah. would just be too much work. So. Well, and actually, it's, it's actually a, a good approach to missionary work. Right. Rather than coming in and saying everything you believe is wrong... Here's your new system of belief. They just take them and change them and add their own flavor. We to got it. a guy who's just like yours. Exactly. Only ours is better, and you're worshiping yeah. him now. His name's <laughs> a little different, and yeah, etc. Babylonians were kicked out by like the Hittites, and then they were kicked out by the Punchites and Kickites. Oh. <laughs> so along with having various names, uh, Enki is a god with a pretty spectacularly complex resume. He's a protector of all who seek his protection. He's a god of creation of crafts of water, particularly freshwater, Hmm. intelligence, and mischief. He's also credited as the creator of the Tablets of May, or Tablets of Destiny. Uh, And those tablets uh, guide the laws of the universe and make the possessor of them omnipotent and omniscient. 
Hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty good to have the tablets. So he, he's the god of crafts. Does he make his own greeting cards? Yes. Okay. Yes, he's also the, the god of uh, glitter. In this chapter, this is a time where pottery is, is pottery skills are required for any scholar. Right, right, <laughs> right. So clearly, as part of his role as the mischief god, Enki is occasionally known as the confuser of languages. Mm-hmm. And this myth leads to a Tower of Babel-like yep. school of linguistics. That's why I knew about him. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, one, one of the many reasons to know about Enki. He also has important roles in two of the most important mythic documents of ancient Mesopotamia, which is the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. In the Enuma Elish, which is an Akkadian creation myth, Enki is part of the second generation of gods. He and his siblings make too much noise and irritate their parents, Apsu and Tiamat. So Apsu, the original god of freshwater, decides to use a Susan Smith solution to get oh, rid of his oh, children. Too soon? Wow. Enki uncovers his father pl- father's plans and kills him in his sleep, thus preventing a worldwide flood. That's worldwide flood number one. Okay. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Enki is less successful in stopping a worldwide flood, but he does manage to save a handful of humans. See, the gods grow annoyed with humanity because they're misbehaving and they decide to wipe them out in one giant flood. This sound familiar to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, how did he save this little select group? Well, this is this is pretty nifty. So Enki, who has a bizarre fondness for hum- humanity, which we have to admit is certainly bizarre, um, goes to a man named Utnapishtim in the night and whispers to him. Actually, he whispers to his wall because of the rule that the gods set up for themselves where they can't talk to humans about this. He whispers to Utnapishtim's wall, which he hears through the wall, about this coming flood. Maybe that's where the Hebrews found crea- uh, got their inspiration to find creative ways around their own rules. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and he's given instructions by Enki to tear down his house and build a boat out of it. And he's actually given exact measurements to build this boat on and told that a big flood is coming. Are they in cubits? Yeah, cubits. I don't believe there are, are, are cubits. What's a cubit then? Yeah. <laughs> so this god tells his favorite human the exact measurements of a boat that he is to fill with various animals and, quote, the seeds of all living things. Udnapishtim does this, loads the boat with animals, his family, and actually he gets a couple of people who helped him build the boat and the guy who pilots the boat. The subcontractors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so much smarter than Noah. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the rain starts. Anyone care to guess on how long it takes to flood the world? Forty. Ha! No. Forty days, forty nights. That's for lazy gods. That's for the E source. Yeah. <laughs> the Mesopotamian the gods. The J source, on the other hand. They do it in seven days. Did, did anybody oh, wow. see the, the robot chicken with Noah's, with Noah's Ark where the alarm goes off yes. and then the, the unicorns are like, oh, crap, we need to get on the boat. And then the boat's like the Ark's <laughs> leaving with the, uh, with the uh, Loch Ness Monster. Doctor, oh, man. Bigfoot. Oh, game over, man. <laughs> uh, so eventually, uh, after the world floods, Utnapishtim's boat gets um, stuck on the top of a mountain. After a few days of sitting there, he lets out a dove. Dove comes back because it can't find land. So he lets out a sparrow the next day. Sparrow comes back. It couldn't find land. Then on the third day, he releases a raven. The raven goes off and doesn't come back. So now he knows that the floodwaters are starting to recede. Or the raven drowned. Or the raven drowned, which is which would be my guess. So then in, in seeing this, he then built an altar to praise the gods. And when he does this, the gods all 
show up and they say, you know what? Maybe that was a little too harsh, flooding the whole world. <laughs> we promise we won't do it again. Did they give them a sign? A double Marduk. rainbow. Oh, a yes. double all the way double. across the oh, sky. Oh, God. Oh, look at it. It's <laughs> a double rainbow. No, there's there's no rainbow. But there should be. Uh, so No, wait, but uh, is it in the Enuma Elish where Marduk hangs his? No, this is a this is fusion of myths. Yeah. Yes. Marduk slays Tiamat, yes. uh, who is a serpent. and Tears uh, her in half. Yes, tears her in half, creating the firmament and hangs yes. his bow in it. So yes, yes. The, the Hebrews pulled from a lot of I, different sources. I only want to know one more thing. Which is Tell me the version where somebody gets drunk and then is seen by his sons and covered with naked. <laughs> that, that's that, all that's, I want to get. Is there incest in this? There is incest. Incest oh. is coming. So the point is this flood narrative is remarkably similar to that of the better known story of Noah. More significant perhaps, is the fact that this story actually predates the story of Noah's Ark, no. uh, which leads us to believe that perhaps the authors of Genesis might not have been entirely inspired by their god. But Enki is not just the god who spared humanity from a flood. Uh, Enki also has a, a little seedier side, because, of course, we can't do mythology without rape or incest. What would be the point? Exactly. I tell my students that every day. Uh, You see, Enki, friend of humanity, creator of the Tablets of Destiny, had himself a pretty messed up sex life. So, um, Mm. like, frankly, most all gods, except for the really boring puritanical ones. Enki's story is particularly icky because it involves him having sex with his own daughters. Weirdly enough, the creator of the Tablets of Destiny didn't know that was a problem. He didn't see that one in in the handwriting on the wall. Or was the clay he, tablet, as what, it were. Was he drunk? Yeah, like Lot. No, he yeah, gets yeah, drunk Lot later. Lot blame it on the booze. Oh, That's what right. did I do last night? What are you looking at me like that for? Now, of <laughs> course, since it's a myth, he has sex with his daughters, and they have children. And they have daughters. So then Enki also has sex with his granddaughter slash daughters in a Chinatown-esque scenario, which leads us to believe that perhaps Roman Polanski might not have been entirely inspired by his god. Oh. <laughs> Enki, I'm glad you threw that in. She's my, he's my daughter. I want she's a my daughter. Stand. She's my granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I played it safe. Enki's wife finds out about his carryings on, and frankly, how could she not? And she punishes Enki, and according to one version of the story, she takes his semen out of the womb of one of his daughters-slash-granddaughters and buries it in the earth. And where she buries it, these plants grow. And Enki eats these plants, thereby consuming his own semen and impregnating his mouth and other portions of his body. His limbs, his teeth, his tongue. Auto-fertilization. Yeah, and of course this causes great problem because he doesn't have a womb, understandably. Can you give yourself herpes? (laughs) If you can, he did it, man. No gods were asexual. I'm just wondering what the the people tell their kids now when they want to eat whatever fruit of that tree. It's like, (laughs) mommy, where did this tree come from? Okay. Well, (laughs) so eventually his wife relieves him of his suffering by taking his sperm into her womb, thereby curing his disease. So it's kind of a myth about sexually transmitted diseases and the way to stay disease-free is to just have sex with your wife. Okay? And it also serves the dual purpose of explaining water-fertilizing plants, Anki, god of water, and conveying the ever-important moral that... Incestuous rape is bad. Never forget that. Mark that down in your in your books. Not in the Ten Commandments, I'm by the way. Down. 
Good, good. Well, I'm glad we have the, this mythology. Uh, otherwise, we would never be able to figure these things exactly, out. Exactly, exactly. Um, and if people don't read these myths, we they're going to go on this. thinking that we can be Until I read ways. this, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and Enki learns his lesson and from then on behaves himself pretty well, except when Inanna slash Ishtar, goddess of sex, prostitutes, and various other things that our good Christian listeners have no interest in, Gets him drunk and steals the tablets of destiny from him. To his credit, though, Anki again admits his mistake, takes the blame for letting his hubris get the better of him, and he and Inanna slash Ishtar form a very nice working relationship as a result. So some have actually compared that to uh, the the relationship between Yah and Asherah. Yes, Yah Yahweh mm-hmm. uh, and Asherah. Why is there all this Asherah worship by the ancient Hebrews? Right. Because it may very well have been that she was a uh, Asherah was a consort to Yahweh. Yes. In the mm. same way, Asherah we, Ishtar. It's a yes. It's a pretty... Asherah and Ishtar are related. So, so it it might actually harken back to this mythology. Yeah, absolutely. Here, well, so so there you have it. That's Enki, god of water and mischief, creator of the tablets of destiny, protector of humanity, abysmal husband and worst father and grandfather, and just one more god worth not believing in. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, now, quick reminder, those of you who have submitted your Gospel of Doubt entries, thank you. Um, we'll be putting together a special episode featuring your stories very soon. Those of you who haven't submitted your Gospel of Doubt stories, which you can do by emailing us at doubtcast at gmail.com, subject line, Gospel of Doubt. There's still time. We'll give it another uh, week or two as I'm going through the entries. And, of course, as always, you can find us on Facebook and Zazzle and Twitter at slash Doubtcast. Be sure to spread the word, um, share the show with friends, write a review on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregators exist that I'm not aware of. Uh, send us your comments, questions, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. And finally, we have we have a bittersweet announcement to make at the end of this episode. Bitter, a bittersweet announcement. Actually, just okay. bitter. Just bitter. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. Uh, Freudian slip. Hi, this is Jeremy, and uh, I'm one of the Doubtcasters, in case you haven't noticed. Perhaps you've heard of him. Yeah. I'm going to be leaving the show temporarily. Temporarily? Yes, temporarily. I, I have uh, really... Really, I don't need to give much of an explanation. I just have an incredibly busy semester ahead of me, and something had to go. And uh, unfortunately, it was uh, it was the close to twenty hours a week I was spending on this podcast. And it was you, dear listener, at certain times. <laughs> you had to go. Uh, yeah, and uh, so the guys have been very generous in uh, in allowing me to take some leave time and come back later. So I will. I will be out of the studio probably until sometime around May. Uh, in Not the, really that long. Uh, and in that time, Justin has been uh, very generous in agreeing to take over for me, keep my keep my chair warm, and cover the counter apologetic stuff while I'm gone. And uh, and I think he does a great job of it. So I'm looking forward actually to becoming a listener of the show for the next couple of months instead of a host of it. So Just don't send us hate mail. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. Waiting don't for that. don't take oh, it out on oh. Justin if you happen to like <laughs> my contribution to the show. Don't take it. Yeah, yeah. We 
and, and no, also uh, and also uh, Dave's <laughs> going to be doing the editing from here on out. So Dave's so much smarter than me. <laughs> we'll have our regular episodes as well as some special episodes thrown into the mix as usual. So thank you yeah. for your continued support. Thanks for uh, continuing to listen. And Jeremy will be back. Those of you who listen to the episodes without Jeremy, uh, we appreciate it. And we'll be back soon uh, with more of Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>